I was 20 years old and newly married, newly graduated from college, and I was working in Bend at a place called Fuqua Homes, which built uh, manufactured homes inside a factory. Okay, so I was up on the roof doing all sorts of things, and um, it was an interesting group of characters that worked there. And one of the guys was an electrician, and he did not like me, and I'm not sure why. Um, he was just kind of grumpy and gruff with me. He didn't say very many words to me, but whenever I did something wrong, he let me know, and he would let me have it with a colorful slew of words. But one day, he came up to me, and he stumped me with kind of like a Sunday school question. He said, hey, you're a Bible guy, right? I said, I like, yeah, I love the Bible. Uh, he's like, what's Philippians 4.13? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. Off the top of my, does anybody know it off the top of their head? Okay, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The reason he wanted to know what Philippians 4.13 was because there was a world champion boxer at the time, Evander Holyfield, who had a tattoo that said Philippians 4.13. And he just wanted to know what in the world is with this tattoo. <laughs> so, so I went and looked it up and came back to him and said, this is what it says. And he was not interested in, in knowing what it means. Um, but what was interesting about that is, is it was one of those kind of Sunday school questions that, you know, you, you want to know the answer to, but you don't know the answer to. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to stump you with another Sunday school question today and see if you know the answer. So good job. You get a sticker or a star or something, Mary Lou. Nice work on the last one. But this one, here's the question. What is the most quoted verse in the Bible? Okay, you would say John 3.16. That's why I asked the question the way I did, right? John 3.16 is probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, probably the most quoted verse at football games, right? It's always in the end zone when they're trying to kick a, kick a field goal, John 3.16, or in the crowd somewhere. Let me ask the question a little bit different way. What verse does the Bible quote the most? So what is the most quoted Bible verse in the Bible? Does anybody know? Linda. That's a good one. Deuteronomy chapter 5, 6. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is not correct, but that's a really good guess. Nice work. You get a sticker. Anybody want to venture a guess? No. I don't want to get wrong. You'll get a sticker, though. I promise. Okay, so here's, I'm, what, I'm going to get to it, but I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to ask you to turn to Exodus chapter 32. Well, actually, 30, yeah, 32, 33, 34. We're going to be right in there. Moses, the man of God, had brought Israel out of Egypt, and they were at Mount Sinai, and God had beckoned Moses to come up to the mountain and spend time with him, and God was giving Moses his law, and he was up there for several weeks, long enough for the people to get frustrated and think he was gone, that he was dead. And so they, they began to get antsy and they turned to Aaron and say, He's, Moses is gone, you need to make for us gods that we can serve. And on the mountain, God heard this clamor and he said to Moses, you need to get down there because the people are prostituting themselves basically to other gods. So God had brought them out of slavery from Egypt, and they were now selling themselves back into slavery, eating and drinking and rising up to play and bowing down before a freshly made golden calf. 
Now Moses comes off the mountain and he's furious. He's furious enough to to break the tablets of God's law. But you can imagine that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the covenant God of Israel, was even more furious. And he threatened to wipe out Israel completely. Just do away with all of them and begin again with Moses. But Moses interceded. He stood between Israel and God. He said, no, God, if you do that, you will lose fame. You will lose face. You will lose your glory because everybody will wonder what kind of God brought his people out just to have them die in the wilderness. And so God relented. Yahweh relented from what he was going to do. And only a portion of the people died in God's wrath because of their rebellion. Very next chapter, that's chapter 32, Exodus chapter 33. Yahweh, covenant God of Israel, withdraws or threatens to withdraw and says to Moses, okay, you go ahead and take him up to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. Again, Moses intercedes for the people and says, if you don't go with us, then why in the world would we go anywhere? If you don't go with us, there's no reason for us even to be a people. And again, you will lose glory. And so he again intercedes for the people and God relents. And he says to Moses, you have found favor in my sight. You are my friend. And then here's what Moses says in verse 18 of Exodus 33. In response to all this, he says, please show me your glory. And we all know God's response. He always says to him, hey, I will show it to you, but I will hide you in a, in a place in the rock. There's a cleft, and I'll hide you. I'll put my hand over you because you can't see my glory. You can't survive seeing my glory. And in that place, he says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. Your Bible probably says the Lord. And if you look at that right there, it says the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What is that? Why does it do that? That is... A shorthand, basically, for the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the covenant divine name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush and the the name that he refers to himself by. It's the glorious covenant name. Many Jews will not even read the Hebrew scriptures and come across that word and pronounce it. They will not say it. They will say something like Adonai, which is another word meaning Lord, and they will replace that because it's it's such a high word. It's, It's a word that they believe shouldn't even be on human lips. God says, I will make my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So then God, Yahweh, hides Moses in the cleft in the rock. His glory passes by and here's what happens. The next chapter, Exodus 34, verses five through seven. Somebody's gonna read it for us, is that... Yahweh, it says, descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So here we are. The most quoted two verses in Scripture. 
Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. These verses, in, like word for word or paraphrased, are repeated at least 27 different times in the Old Testament from the beginning to the end. I see Megan nodding back there. Did you get it right? You knew it? Nice work. But she didn't say anything, so she didn't get a sticker. <laughs> or maybe, well, she didn't say it loud enough anyway. So either directly quote or paraphrase at least 27 times. I'm just going to give you a few examples. Second Chronicles 30, verse 9. For Yahweh your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 86, verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 103, verse 8, that Zach read this morning, the Lord, Yahweh, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Joel chapter 2, verse 13, return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Those are only, that's only five instances of the 27 times, just in the Old Testament, that that verse is repeated or paraphrased or spoken again. Now, so to a lot of people's surprise, the Old Testament actually majors on God's mercy and his loving kindness and his grace and his forgiveness, which lays the backdrop for Jesus' fifth beatitude, which is our theme verse for today, Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. But if you read the rest of Exodus 34, 7, it says that God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So a couple more examples of of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 being repeated. Deuteronomy 5, verse 9, For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So it's not that, it's not that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is slack on sin. He just happens to be abundant in mercy as well. I will judge to the third and fourth generation, but I will show abundant love to thousands. Thousands. Nahum, verse, chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. So if we think, of, think about this verse and why it is, is repeated so often throughout the Old Testament, we have to see that what God is doing here, that the drum that God continues to bang from beginning to end in his word is his own character, which is a perfect balance of mercy and justice. And so I think we can reasonably say that if a Jew, an ancient Israelite, knew anything about this God, about the God who called himself Yahweh, they knew that he was gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah was somebody who knew that about God. 
You can turn to Jonah chapter 4. And you know the story of Jonah who was commanded to go and preach to the Assyrians. He wasn't told to go to preach to Israel or, or the people of Judah. He was told to go to an enemy empire who had come in and completely decimated Israel and done horrendous things to them and exiled them. These were a, these were a horrible enemy of Israel. And God says, go and preach to them. And so Jonah says, okay, I will run the other way. And decides to go as far away from God, as far away from Yahweh as he possibly can. But God will not let him off the hook so easily. So finally, after he gets swallowed by a fish and spit up on the land, he makes his way to Nineveh, this huge city, and he preaches in it from one end to the other. And he is not surprised when the people of Nineveh repent. They repent and they turn to God and God, God abates his, God stops his anger. God stops his wrath. And Jonah, in response to that, this man who had, who had preached repentance to Nineveh, in response to that, he walks outside the city, sits down. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to Yahweh, and he said, O oh, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What verse was Jonah quoting right there? Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. He raises his fist, shakes his fist at God and said, how dare you keep to your character? How dare you do what you promise? And he accuses God of being true to his own character, much to his chagrin. And so Jonah runs away from God because he did not want God, God's merciful character to leak out onto people that he didn't think deserved it especially on his and Israel's enemies. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is the testimony also of the New Testament. This is the kind of God we have who's boundless in mercy, who loves his enemies, which means, by the way, that he loves you and I, loves you and me. In the richness of his mercy, Ephesians 2 tells us, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were enemies of God, Romans 5. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is the mercy of God on his enemies. The same mercy that, that God poured out on the people of Nineveh. God's mercy drives the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Peter writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great, what? Mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready 
to be revealed at the last time. God's mercy drives the gospel. God's mercy drives his merciful, gracious acts towards us. We see it again in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I, I hope you're also starting to see how these, how these beatitudes fit together, because last week we talked about the meek inheriting the earth. And both of these passages speak of the inheritance that we have in Christ because of his mercy that has been on us, that has been given to us. So it's in the midst of bad news, in the midst of our own sinfulness, our own rebellion, our own deserved judgment, that mercy breaks through into our reality and brings salvation. And without God's steadfast character of merciful love, we would have no hope. Lamentations reminds us Beautifully, the steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. So what is mercy? We live in a culture in which revenge is assumed, right? In which payback is natural, but mercy is forgiveness. Mercy encompasses this idea of forgiveness. I think we watch TV or movies and we love it when the bad guy gets their due. We love it when the good guy gets the last word in or the last punch in or the last shot off or whatever it happens to be. Lucy read a story for us from the mouth of Jesus himself to a disciple, Peter, who said, how many times do I have to forgive my brother who keeps sinning against me? Seven times? That's enough, right? Jesus says, no, try, that, try to multiply that by 70 and see how that goes. Then he tells the story of this unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18. Story of a man who owed his master millions of dollars, an unpayable sum, and he pleads for pity to his master, and his master, in pity, forgives him. He doesn't say, hey, we'll set up a payment plan. He wipes out his debt completely. The, master, the, the servant leaves his presence, immediately finds another servant, one of his peers, grabs him by the throat and says, basically, pay me the 150 bucks you owe me. This servant responds in the same way, and he, he pleads for mercy, pleads for pity, give me time and I'll pay you back. But this servant has no mercy, extends no mercy, and throws him into jail until he pays back his minuscule debt. The master hears about it, of course, and, and draws this servant back into his presence and throws him into prison, saying, you have been shown great mercy and you cannot even show some mercy to your peer." And this story profoundly illustrates the point from the book of James, chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Mercy is shown as as we forgive, as God forgives us. Mercy is this characteristic of God that intercedes between us, the guilty ones, and justice, the justice that we deserve. And so mercy, forgiveness, always has to take a loss. The one who forgives always says, I will lose something. I I will take it in myself. I will take the loss. I will take justice on my own head and extend forgiveness at great personal cost, which is exactly what God has done for us in Christ by taking his own justice on himself so that we might have mercy. Reflecting God's heart of mercy is perhaps the most difficult way to live. The most difficult thing for you and for I to do as followers of Jesus because it will cost us greatly just as it costs Jesus greatly. Mercy is forgiveness, but mercy is more than that. Mercy is also compassion. You've probably heard mercy defined or you've defined it yourself as basically not receiving what you deserve. Right, so mercy is not receiving what you deserve, and we define grace as receiving something you don't deserve, like forgiveness or, or something like that. Mercy is not, deserve, or not receiving what you deserve. So we deserve the judgment of God, but God in his mercy withholds it from us. Instead of getting the judgment we deserve, we get forgiveness. We get peace and grace. Now, That is certainly true, and that is mercy is forgiveness. But the biblical concept of mercy is actually much deeper, much wider than simple leniency. It carries with it the connotation of compassion. One lexicon I looked at said that that mercy is being concerned about another's unfortunate state or misery and being concerned about people in their need. This is the same kind of of mercy that that Jesus embodies himself, as Hebrews 2.17 tells us that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest, that through him we can come into the throne room of God and with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is a compassionate high priest that looks on us not only with leniency, for sure with leniency, but with compassion, with a heart of tenderness for us. But it's not even just the the feeling of a heart of compassion that isn't enough. Another lexicon put it this way that I looked at this week. It said, having mercy or showing compassion must involve some act of kindness or concern. So it's not just feeling bad when you turn on the TV and you, and you watch the, the ad with the kids who are starving in Africa and they ask for you to send a dollar a week to them or a dollar a day or whatever. It's not, it's not just having a, a tender heart when you see that. But it's actually acting on that. A heart of mercy is a heart that not only sees people in need but moves toward people in acts of mercy. So I want you to turn again in in Matthew to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to look at another parable that Jesus tells. Matthew chapter 25, we have basically Jesus' description of the final judgment. 
He speaks of the end of time, verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes, it's Jesus, when he comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's a sobering, a powerful story, and I want to just draw three quick truths from it. And the first truth is that Christ's heart of compassion is evident in this story. Yes, Jesus sits as judge over the nations, over all people in this story, but his heart of compassion is evident in that Jesus identifies with and stands with those who are in need. He stands with those who are in an unfortunate state of misery. It doesn't just say he has compassion on them from a distance, but he actually stands in their place in such a way that to love them is to love him. It's how closely his heart of compassion is connected with those who are in misery. I remember telling this story, teaching this parable at youth group one time a few years ago, and I remember a, a girl in the group kind of pushed back on me. She said, what about those who are suffering tremendously? What about the person that's being abused? What about my friend who just got raped? What about them? Seems to me like God isn't listening, like God is just distant, like God has turned his back. Why didn't God alleviate their suffering? And all I could say from this story, first of all, I could say I don't understand exactly I can't, I can't sympathize fully, completely with where you're coming from or where your friend is at. I feel for them, but listen to this. In this story, if Jesus is with anybody, as Jesus is close to anybody, he is close to those who are suffering. He wasn't distant. He hadn't turned his back. He was with her. He was with them in the suffering, identifying as close as he could possibly be. Jesus has not abandoned us in our suffering. He is in our midst. The second thing that the story shows 
is that Jesus himself embodies God's character, Yahweh's character, and his perfect balance of mercy on the one hand to those on his right and justice on the other hand to those on his left. And then finally, the third thing in this story, we see that the level of mercy we are granted at the last judgment is proportional to the level of mercy we have shown in this life. Christ's mercy falls on those who have his own heart for the least of these and who have moved towards them, who have cared for them, who have given themselves at great personal cost to love them. And his judgment falls on those who do not display his heart for the least of these and who completely miss him in ignoring those in need. See, Christ requires his followers to attend to the weightier matters of the law, which he says are justice and mercy and faithfulness. And over and over again, he pleads with the Pharisees to devote themselves to learn what it means that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And as James famously says in James 1 and 2, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Says he's received mercy but does not extend mercy? What good is it? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? See, the merciful are those who Jesus would call his own hands and feet, who display the mercy of God to the least of these around us, and in so doing, in extending Jesus' mercy to others, we are also extending his own mercy to him. To reflect God's heart, we shouldn't just care for those around us or those who are like us or those who are easy to love, but we've been given a mandate to care for the unborn, for the poor and the homeless, for the widows and the orphans, the addicted, the mentally ill, the immigrants, the victims of human trafficking, and all those who are oppressed. I hear the word social justice warrior. It's a term, not a, it's a phrase, not a word. I, I, I hear that thrown around all over the place. And some people use it as a, a banner of victory. Others use it as an epithet. And I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why there's so much rancor over it. Because to be about justice in this world, to be about mercy in this world, is to care for the people that Jesus cared for like we were caring for Jesus himself. Jesus certainly identifies with those who are oppressed and he calls us to show them mercy as well. So a lot of times I think we need to put all the epithets and all the the political rancor and the division aside and go, Jesus, who do you want me to love today? Who have you put in front of me to extend your mercy towards? How can I love you, Jesus, by loving the least of these? Mercy is forgiveness, mercy is compassion, mercy is also transformative. Which brings us full circle really back to the fifth beatitude, Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. 
And at the core of this beatitude is the truth that mercy is transformative. The kind of people who have gratefully received transforming mercy are the kind of people who show mercy. If we prefer to treat people with justice, if we look at everyone and say, I will only give every person what they deserve, then God will deal with us in the same way. So you have to ask yourself the question, do I want God to treat me with justice? And if your answer is yes, then I'm just going to say, good luck. It's not going to go well. So we have to treat others as we want God to treat us. If we prefer to treat them with justice, God will treat us in the same way. But if we follow the character and if we follow the way of Jesus by treating people with mercy, regardless of whether or not they deserve it, then we too will receive mercy. And the more that we show mercy, the more we will begin and and grow in looking like the merciful one himself. As Jesus said, be merciful as your father is merciful. So what is a... What does a merciful disciple of Jesus look like? What what does a merciful church look like? This is Colossians 3, 12 and 13, and I think it at least helps us to begin with an answer. Paul writes this, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I'm just going to give you two quick and easy. This is what it looks like to be a merciful disciple. And the first is to be quick to forgive. Not to hold grudges, not to have to defend yourself or be right or get what you deserve all the time. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We must be quick to forgive, and we must, we must drill down deep into the mercy and the strength of God and the, and the help and the strength of the Holy Spirit to be able to do this, because sometimes forgiveness is nearly impossible. Would you agree? We must have the help of our Father if we're going to be merciful in forgiveness. Be quick to forgive. The second is simply this. Put on then compassionate hearts, which is just allowing our hearts to be broken for the things that break God's heart. And when our hearts are hard, when we can look out in the world and look past suffering, Look past someone who has a legitimate need. Look past someone who requires mercy. When our hearts are hard, what that requires from us is confession and repentance. God, my heart is hard. Will you please break it? Will you please soften it? We as a church should be praying this prayer. God, sometimes our hearts are hard and we need you to soften and break our hearts for what breaks yours. And then a willing openness to open our eyes and see the needs and the hurts and the pains that are around us. And then going home and watching TV. No, and then taking action, serving, 
doing something difficult, actively showing mercy to the least of these, because when we do, we're loving our Lord himself. Let's pray. Jesus, you've called us to be forgiving and merciful as our heavenly Father is forgiving and merciful. So I'd come now and just confess that I do not always have the heart of compassion that you have towards others. I'm quick to judge, quick to make conclusions about how a person has gotten themselves into their own situation or their own hole and they need to pull themselves back out of it. But God, you would call us beyond that. Jesus, I think you would call us to have your heart of mercy. So would you break my heart? Would you break our hearts? Would you give us a heart of mercy and compassion that reflects yourself? Would you give us Lord, your Holy Spirit, to open our eyes and to see the needs in the world. And even when it's difficult to extend forgiveness and mercy and love in the most difficult of circumstances. Blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. Jesus, we thank you for your mercy on us. Make us a merciful people. It's in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.